four weeks, six weeks, our friends in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe, in the US, everywhere will wake up out of their winter dormancy. And I'm not saying only the, the farmers, but also uh, the crops on the field. And everybody wants to throw a little bit of nitrogen on their fields because the winter wheat, the, the canola, everything is starting to grow again. Uh, they're going to plant corn up in the US and they need to throw uh, fertilizer on that. So we're going to be now in, in that period where uh, pretty soon those farmers will have to put some fertilizers on. So we feel that global prices may have done most of the work on the way down and we'll find a bottom. Our local prices usually always have the issue a little bit more sticky on the way up and a little bit more sticky on the way down and it takes just a little longer. Um, so local pricing uh, is, is always a bit harder to forecast. But uh, for now, we don't see global prices go to the all-time highs back, which should also be very good news for us here. Welcome to Boots Off, Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business, a show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David, and I'll be your host for the show. All righty. Well, welcome to the uh, podcast, Devin. Thank you very much for having me. I mean, it's uh, been a while since I was over in WA seeing you in person, so glad to be uh, virtually back with my voice at least. Yeah, definitely. I I saw, those of you listening, I saw Stefan speak at the AAACWA, got to kind of get my mouth hole working today, um, speak at the Outlook Conference. And I think you're probably one of the most well-received presentations of the day. Very interesting stuff too. Not just stunning presentation skills, but just good content, which is always amazing when you take the day out to go to these events. Thank you very much. You're too, you're too kind to me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so this is what prompted me to obviously invite Stefan to come on and share this knowledge with a, a wider audience. Um, and it's a good day today because uh, Stefan and Rabo, well, you can tell me about this, have just released the uh, the Rabo. Is it the Outlook? Is it Outlook 23 yeah. or just? Yeah. So Outlook 2023. So usually we've got anyway a monthly report, but for the Outlook, we, we do a little bit more of uh, work around it and, and a little bit more planning and so on. So how do we see 2023 is kind of the big question. And we've actually entitled it that we will continue on a successful path. And when I say we... I actually mean the agri-sector in Australia and uh, with it, hopefully, also the businesses like yours and mine. Yeah, definitely. So before we get into the details of that, and we're going to drill into the details of that for everybody today. Now, you've been in Australia a couple of years, have you, Stephen? Like, is that right? Yeah. So we actually came pretty much one year ago. Oh, I think really? uh, this weekend somewhere is my one-year birthday in Australia to have officially relocated down here. So I've joined Rabobank. About eight years ago in London, um, at that point in time, I was responsible for our global research, largely mm. in the commodity space, so grains and oil seeds, but also our price forecasting for coffee and cocoa and sugar and all kinds of things you can trade on an exchange that are soft commodities. Um, and uh, well, then uh, we did a couple of these visiting expert tours, so Rabo brings you down here and drags you to every doorpost they can find <laughs> um, over a two-week two period. Uh, you've seen... WA, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales. And if you're lucky, you also made it into Queensland. So uh, uh, we've, we've put a lot of miles on the agenda. So I always love that. I, I love to be close for, to farmers. I personally grew up in Germany uh, and my grandfather had a farm, but uh, you guys wouldn't even call it a farm because it was 15 hectares, not 15,000, just 15. 
So my mom always said, boy, what are you doing in Agri? That's just not the space where we can make any money off that farm. Well, here I am now in Australia, finally, and I think you guys are doing the right farming. I was just home in my home village, and there were about 15 of those tractors on the street, and each of them was about from the 1950s to 1960s, because all of them are hobby guys making some wood in the forest and whatever. But it's very difficult for me to see those nice big deers and Ks and Akko tractors somewhere in Europe, as I see them here when I cross the fields in your area. So. Australia is an amazing place for Agri, and I really love it down here. Yeah, it's Europe. While we're there, it's Europe so different. Now you've obviously spent a big career. You've studied globally, as in the in, in your work life. You have got it now. If I've got it right, you you actually studied ag economics originally when you like at yep. uni. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I studied yeah. ag economics, which at that point in time, and and I know indicate maybe how old or young I am. Um, that was not very popular. We didn't have the first commodity cycle there of the 2007s. That was a time when everybody was kind of like, nah, you need to study these computer things. They're all new. And and then the internet bubble bursted and I was like, oh, thank goodness I didn't go down that route. Um, no. So yeah, I'm an ag economist, but I've always followed my passion. I knew that I love agriculture and I wanted to be somewhere in the food and agri space. And, and so I've been after studies, uh, I've been working for about 10 years in one of the largest grain companies in the world, partly in their market research division in Germany, which was the global trading arm at that time, then had the opportunity to go over to the headquarters in the US and uh, spent, well, over about a, a two-year period or so, I spent about 18, 19 months over there. And then when you just think you're settling and you love it there, something happens and you're back in Germany. So I was a couple of years back in Germany. And after a good 10 years with them, I joined Rabobank. And uh, I have to say, I, I really love both companies I've worked with. And uh, the good thing about this industry is usually you make a lot of friends and a lot of these friendships last for a very long time. So I've been really fortunate. And the both within agribusiness, which you've made your career in, and in agriculture and farming and centrally, there's a really good kinship globally, really. It's interesting, you know, like I've noticed that when I used to be a farmer, which is a long time ago, you'd get ag tours coming from say Canada to here, or, you know, my brother has spent a bit of time in America and, and the UK and Europe. There's a kinship regardless, even if you do have 15 acres, the kinship between someone with 15 acres in Germany is pretty much the same with someone with 15,000 here, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. No, and, and it's important also for farmers to get out there and to see how others are farming and, and to understand what, where do they maybe have an edge on the other side uh, when they're producing wheat or where do they actually have a disadvantage. And so I've joined a couple of those farmer tours as well. We brought a, a couple of Australian farmers a few years back over to Europe, and we also went into Ukraine. Maybe a good time for many of them to see what Ukraine's potential was before we mm. have seen now going it, unfortunately, the other way with the war. But also here, we've got a Rabobank client tour from the US and, and clients from Brazil coming in in March. So... I'll join them a little bit on their trip and, and visit with them in. So I think that's an awesome opportunity for farmers to also get on the other side of the world and just see, wow, this is actually how they're doing it. And, 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 and do they really have all these capabilities in the Midwest to plant corn? And I've been living in the Midwest for a while. You drive in the morning and there's nothing in the field and you drive in the afternoon and the planting is more or less done. So it's it's in it's it's the same kind of uh, capabilities that you guys in in WAF as well. Good machinery, uh, really able to plant and and harvest a lot in in a very short period of time. And and to see it firsthand is usually always a good experience. Yeah, definitely. And 
we're talking about that. So we're talking about how ag seems to be increasingly global and we tend to increasingly communicate and network and learn off each other globally. But when I, the f- interesting stuff you f- you h- hit off your presentation at Outlook with, it was, um, you had a term, you made up a word, but essentially you were talking about essentially the, 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 the benefits we've had from globalization, which has really been, I don't, I don't know the time frame. you could better educate me, probably post-war to now is, is are now sort of declining a bit where the globalization is, is in a contraction mode. Can you better explain that? And you got better share us your new word that sure. you've made up. Yeah, no, I mean, we, we called it the new era of globalization and oh. then uh, had a little bit of an erasure running over it. And actually we said, uh, this is the erasure of globalization because clearly if you look, yeah, we had the Cold War times when the US and the Americans were not talking and each of us had to somehow pick our sides where we want to be. And then we went into a period here in the late 90s, 2000s and so on, when it just felt like, oh, the Cold War is over, the Berlin Wall fell down, and, and we kind of felt all like, oh, this is, uh, this is going into a global universe. And, and if you look at the trade over that course of time, also for, for agri-commodities, but also for other commodities, it has increased so much and clearly it benefits us in Australia. We, mm. uh, we have this massive farming sector. We only have 26 or so million people consuming. We need to ship a lot of our volumes to the world market. And so what happens politically in, in the world market is, is so easy reflected back here into our markets because we feel it immediately with the price wings in wheat, in fertilizers, in, in everything you actually see on the farm level. So with that, I think uh, we are unfortunately for the last couple of years a little bit in a direction where the globalization is more under threat. Um, you've seen it, what was it, five years ago, maybe four years ago when the United States and China started what, what they called the, the trade wars there when the Chinese suddenly said, oh, we're not buying any soybeans anymore from the United States. And they tried to try to buy everything from South America and the American farmers were suddenly sitting on a bunch of soybeans they needed to move somehow into Europe. And so the trade is always creative. Clearly, there's always opportunities for these global trading houses to make sure if the U.S. has soybeans and the Chinese don't want it, well, they find a way to get it into Europe, they find a way to get it into Africa and so on. But it usually always means you're not getting the perfect best price that you could because your prime destination where you go to just closed the door on you. So with that, um, we have seen clearly also it provided opportunities for South America. Suddenly the the U.S. uh, soybeans was not in demand, but the Brazilian and Argentinian soybean were in high demand. And these guys were celebrating that prices are going up here in our region more than they are going up in the United States. So there's always an opportunity also in those, those tough times. But coming here on our side, we had also to learn uh, what geopolitics can mean to us. We have seen uh, Bali more or less from one day to another, not being able anymore to go to China, rock lobster, wine. So a lot of those products that we thought, well, this is our key destination market and uh, it works so well. When the door is closed, it's very hard to get that door open again. And so we're looking into a future here. And I don't want to sound too negative because right now there's nothing we can do about it. But we just need to be aware. If China comes up with some kind of ideas, they can do it. It could be just a trade restriction on us. Right now, the headlines are, are rather positive. Uh, Australian representatives are a couple of times in the last few months, they were over in China and you read positive headlines, but we also know China can, can do their thing. And uh, we still look at 
the China-Taiwan situation with a little bit of a worry. We clearly all hope that we will not repeat what Ukraine and Russia are going through, but uh, it's also somehow clear that China is in that progress of trying to be a world power and a dominant power, not only in regards to economy, but also in terms of military, in terms of social and society issues. So with that, we're looking at China trying to climb the ladders further up in regards of leading the world and the United States probably in the boat of saying, this is my spot, buddy, and uh, I will defend that kind of position I'm in. So um, that brings us as Australia maybe at some point in time to the decision, if these guys are clashing, where do we want to stand? And uh, do we set sides and, and, and join the U.S. side, um, then China will probably have to say, well, let's find a couple more commodities we don't like from you. Maybe it's wool, maybe it's something else. So you never know. Yeah. So from farmers, one of the things I was really encouraged with, especially the post-barley, post-crayfish lobster bands, was how, not quickly, but how well the, the trading houses, the farmers adapted. They found, found markets, maybe not at optimum price always, but, you know, those, those, both the traders and the farmers adapted incredibly, a lot quicker than I, I would have imagined. So, is, for, so we're talking, you know, yes, there's nothing that an individual grower can do any of these big geopolitical moves. Absolutely not, yeah. But they might need to just keep it in the back of their mind or the front of their mind in the context of stra strategy. And, um, you know, going, going forward, you're not always, you know, you can't always assume you're just going to have this go-to market that's always going to be there and always going to be taking your stuff and maybe. So it's, um, it's an interesting one. It's not a day-to-day -day tactical cash flow sort of what am I going to plant no. this week sort of thing, is it? But it's, no. it's something we have to be aware of. Exactly. Absolutely. I think farmers don't need to, to break their head over it every day. But as you say, on a strategic decision, do I double and triple what I'm doing and I'm really going in one direction? You need to see how you can, can keep things open. And as you said, I mean, the trade usually gets creative. And, and uh, I mean, with a basic product like barley or, or wheat or canola, all of that is, is rather easily possible. You find somewhere else in the world, it just increases your shipping costs compared to your competitors. So you're not getting the optimal price, but we also need to be very clear um, when, when the whole shutdown on, on Bali happened, we had to go to Saudi Arabia and that is a feed market rather than a little bit of a feed and a brewing market in, in China. So with that, we also faced a bit of a, a difference there in terms of what they actually want. They just want to feed their camels and their horses and, and their livestock in the region. And we need to be price competitive against the Ukrainian, the Russian, the Europeans who are sitting next door to Saudi Arabia and, and are much, much closer than we are. So with, with a basic product, that's usually easier possible than with a higher value product where you have a set kind of market. And, and so with that, we're, we're looking at overall, yes, we're producing beef, we're producing sheep meat and so on. A lot of those commodities hopefully can go to, to many places in the world. Um, but in, in those times here where geopolitics plays a role, you can't do much about it in your day-to-day -day operation. But when you think, do I triple this or do I diversify? That's where you need to think. And, and I think the other part is important that our government continues to have these good relations with many countries as possible to make sure when we need to get flexible, when we need to say, oh, we can't go to China, we need to go somewhere else, that all of those other doors are open, even so we may haven't shipped anything there for many, many years. We've seen it with pulses when the Indians didn't want to have the pulses. We needed to go into so many different countries. 
and we've done it. But those doors need to be open with all of those markets that we may haven't served with, with lots of volumes in the past. It's very much a team game, isn't it? You've got, yeah. you've got, you know, government, you've got industry and, and like international relations, you've got traders. It's a very much of a team game as a country, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So now you've just, um, is it today the report's being released? Yeah, report went out a couple of hours ago, so uh, perfect timing. Um, and and yeah. clearly, we usually look at that and, and say, well, wow, we, we have a report out of the door, but then actually the fun starts because people like you, the journalists, but also the clients uh, come back and say, hey, can we have a chat about this? And this is usually where, as an analyst, the fun starts. Uh, I personally don't get the joy out of writing something, but I get the joy out of coming up with my messages and I get the joy out of talking to, to as many people as possible about the content. And uh, that's the idea, usually what we do in Rabo Research, that we provide the knowledge to our clients and, and, and hopefully help them think through some of the bigger themes that are on the road for the next 12 months, but also beyond. Well, let's get into those things. Before we go into the specifics, we will go into the specifics for those listening on commodities and inputs, et cetera. But before we do that, what are the big themes around headwinds, tailwinds, what's happening in ag at the moment? And what is, so what are the big sort of um, moving levers you're saying? Yeah. So if, if we maybe go through, um, we already touched on geopolitics. Clearly, if, if you would have asked me a little over a year ago, what's the big headline for 2022? I would have probably said, well, it's probably a continuation of COVID. Not a lot of people had expected that a war in Ukraine starts. So geopolitics, as mentioned, is still something to look at, but for now, we don't expect it to be as exciting as 2022. We still think the war in Ukraine will continue for many, many months, unfortunately, but we're not seeing right now that uh, China will invade Taiwan. So with that, uh, we, we keep an eye on, on a lot of geopolitical things, but it, it can bring us some volatility, but it probably doesn't. The other part we're looking at is, is clearly recession. And the question is still, does the world run into a recession or not? And how bad it is? So let's not care too much about the word recession, but it is pretty clear to us with the consumer prices as they are very, very much up from what they have been in the past with interest rates around the world in many countries significantly higher than they were in the past. That's just a little less money in the pockets of the consumers. And the consumer needs to figure out, what do I do? Do I pay my mortgage? Do I pay uh, for that nice little steak in the restaurant? Or So consumers usually get a bit more creative and say, well, let's trade down. Let's buy a, a cheaper piece of meat rather than an expensive one. Let's, go no, let's not go to the restaurant twice a week, but let's rather cook at home from time to time and, and save a bit of money. So with that, we, we think there will be an impact felt in, in the more higher valued products, be it on the dairy side, be it in the meat side, but not so much in terms of volumes, but rather in mm -hmm. terms of just the pricing impact. We see that, that some of those higher quality might be a little less in demand and that there is a bit of a shift for, for some of the prices. We've seen already a lot of pressure coming also to our market. I mean, if you look into the period there from May when the grain prices in Chicago were record high and they collapsed within six weeks, eight weeks to uh, by about 30% or so. You can argue that everything was fundamentally driven and, and people had a great view on, on all the volume that come out of Ukraine. But you could also argue, actually, not a whole lot has changed. The uncertainty was still there. And we have seen, however, the word recession circling around, a lot of people being afraid of what happens, the stock market under pressure, the crude oil market under pressure. And you see the influence from from that on our prices also in the agri space. So with that, 
I think we we still see that economic headwind in 2022 to be an issue. Um, farm inputs, and maybe we talk about fertilizers and so on in more detail, but clearly farm inputs is something to watch. We think the prices will be above what we have paid in the last five years on average, but they hopefully will be way off from the highs we had last year. They have come down. So farm input costs are something to watch because, well, you know it as good as I do. It's nice and dandy if we create great prices for wheat and the dairy and, and meat and so on. But we also need to make sure that what we have to spend to produce those uh, is, is rather economic. So farm inputs is something to watch. Maybe the other part to, to look at is labor shortages, supply chain issues, and so on. They are all still with us in 2023, but it's getting better. And we have experience. I mean, we've now done the second year of uh, this is this is not working. The labor isn't here. So we just have to work through it and we have experience with it. So that's that's all there. And maybe also a couple of other good news around it. If you look at the, the freight market, the container market globally have come down significantly. And we're importing a lot of things in these container boxes here, whatever chemicals we're using, whatever machinery parts we're using. But oh, even as, as private people, pretty much a lot of the stuff that is in these electronic stores and so on is coming in in the container boxes. And uh, those container prices went up five times in the period 2020 to, to middle of 2022, uh, first driven by COVID and the issues, then driven by the war. Those container rates have come down massively. The only problem is right now they have come down massively, especially on the prime route. So Europe to China or China to Europe, China to, to the US and back. So on those routes, they have come down a lot also because with the expectation that we have economic headwinds and people will have to buy maybe less of whatever. You're not buying a TV this year. You're buying a new one only in two years time. You're buying less of this and that. So there's a little bit of the expectation. The trade volumes may go down because of the economic headwinds. And that's pricing in in those, uh, those container markets as well. But for us here, being in Australia, we're a little off the prime routes, which also means our container rates have not gone down as much. But we hope that there's more pressure on the containers, which should all help us for the stuff we're importing, that it just gets a little cheaper because we have to clearly pay for the freight for all the goods we want to have here. Refrigerated containers, so those containers where we put our meat and fruit and veggies and so in to keep them cool, uh, like in our refrigerators, um, and ship them halfway around the world for two, three, four weeks. Um, those container freight rates have not come down as much as the the normal dry containers. So the the freight rates are still elevated. We think they will lower over the course of the year, but it takes even more time than it does for the for the regular container. So with that, a little bit of good news from the shipping side. It's getting better, but that's just a little bit what we feel on the probably imported goods side more than on the exported goods side. Is there a quite a big lag? So let's say, you know, uh, consumers in, the, let's say the big markets start buying less stuff. So um, there's a lot less containers of TVs and and drones going across the across the ocean, and that reduces volume. Is there any relationship between shipping companies, you know, moving ships towards other commodities, in other words, moving them from containers to bulk transport or moving them yeah, from, yeah. you know, is there any sort of relationship between all that? Well, well, first of all, in similar to maybe what happens in the grain market, it's actually very often not about what actually happens right now. It's about what is the expectation of the market. So, I mean, you see the wheat market moving and it's moving because everybody thinks the Russian crop will be big or, or small. And in two months time, it will be confirmed if it is big or small. 
but the expectation is setting the price already way, well ahead. So right now there's a lot of that thinking, well, recession will do things to the trade and the volumes are down. But the other thing we're also seeing in the shipping industry, the supply is going up. So these guys have mm -hmm. made very, very good margins and they have seen that on the one side, every little vessel that can still swim was on the water out there because there was a shortage and they needed to wait 60 or whatever days to finally get into a port. And, and if you have these waiting times, it just reduces the available capacity because your, your vessel is standing around and is, is not doing anything. So you've taken capacity out of the market. Capacity is coming back because on the one side, we, are, we have more or less chewed through a lot of those kind of bottlenecks and, and vessels are there. But they also have acquired a lot more vessels. So in 23, 24, we're going to see quite a bit of extra container ships coming to the world market. And, and so there's also the expectation in the freight rates now in that, well, we have more vessels coming, we have a recession, plus the logistic issues have been all worked through or, or getting worked through. So suddenly we have more volume. So it, it's a bit of, of that, the, the discrepancy of, well, do I put stuff that I had in a container suddenly in a bulk vessel or not? It, it's, it's often not as much. Clearly, we have seen it here when we try to export our pulses in containers and we couldn't find a single box that wanted to go to Pakistan or any of the, the countries nearby over there. We had to get creative. And at some point in time, people will say, well, can't find the container boxes. Let's find a small little bulk vessel and let's put everything into that bulk boat and ship it over because it, it makes sense from an economic standpoint. We don't have another option. So let's go down that route. But that's usually a little bit more the, the last resort in terms yeah, of okay. what to do. All right. Let's get into the stuff that people are really, everyone's sitting around at the moment. So, so we're in February ah, now, 2023. You made people listen 25 minutes and yeah, now you yeah, finally yeah. get to the interesting yeah, part. Right, the interesting <laughs> part, right? Everyone's sitting around doing their budgets at the moment, right? And in and when we're sitting around in November, it was looking pretty, a tough job ahead of them, right? And yeah. let's talk about it. Let's start with what's the outlook for, you know, what's in the report, the outlook for commodity prices for 2023 yeah. and beyond a year of thinking? So, so first of all, um, one of the things we're doing is we, we create our own index and we say, well, about a third of that one is beef and about a quarter of that is wheat and, and whatever, almost 10% is canola. So we created our index. And if you look at that one, that peaked in pretty much middle of last year and has come down since then. And it is heavily driven clearly by the, the price declines we had in grains, the price declines we had already in beef. But we are also seeing that our prices will probably stabilize here. So uh, we're not very bearish anymore on falling prices for grains globally and locally. Clearly, we still have the issue that our logistics are uh, pretty much full, especially in your areas in Western Australia. I don't think I say anything new here when, uh, when everybody sees how big the crop is in your region and mm. uh, that even so your logistics are, are pretty much hitting an export record every month. It just doesn't get all out of the door. So locally, we still have that discrepancy that maybe our prices are a little off from what global prices are just because of the logistics issues. But if we're looking into pricing, we think that both grain prices don't have a big reason to fall, but also that beef prices will probably come here and, and kind of find a bottom rather soon. That's good news. Uh, and the most important is clearly on the fertilizer sites that when we looked at it in, in November, December, that's what really kind of brought those clouds on the horizon in terms of, oh, that's mm. going to be a painful 23. But now luckily also those prices are coming down. And so I think that the margins are still looking now a little better in our books compared to what they were in, in, in November. But it's unfair to think, well, 
you're going to have five or six tons a hectare in, in Western Australia mm-hmm. of wheat for the next harvest. Plus, you're going to have, once again, those uh, really, really good pricing that you had. Yeah. So with the fertilizer, there was a whole lot of, there was a ton of factors, which we probably don't have time to go into with fertilizer globally. But those factors are starting to clear up, like we're starting to get volumes out of the place that have it. Um, so the yep. is it you look are you looking at a, a trend towards these lower prices now? Because some of those yep. factors that were driving them up are sort of being resolved. Yeah, yeah. So we we look at if you look the, take the the global prices, and when I say global, basically those in the origins where you have the export numbers, they have fallen forty to fifty percent from the highs. Wow. So that is is significant. And that's really, really good news. And and let's focus maybe on two or three drivers. The, the one driver has been a lot of people late in the year were very concerned about the gas prices in Europe because for urea production, you need natural gas. And in Europe, gas prices had not only doubled, but partly tenfolded and more. So going completely ballistic. And if you're a company that basically says, well, most of my costs are natural gas and they are 10 times as high, you're no way that you make margin even with the fertilizer where they are. So they all just turned off the production and said, well, let's wait for better times. And those better times now have arrived. So the the gas prices are significantly down. Reason for the lower gas prices, the governments in Europe have done a pretty decent job in originating gas from other countries by boat. So we basically have said, Mr. Putin, we're not taking your gas via the pipelines anymore. So that's kind of the the one thing where we've got quite a bit of extra gas better maybe than the market was hoping for. But the more important piece was it was warm in Europe. When I say warm, it was still winter, but it was a warmer winter. Mm. And a lot of people have not turned on the heat as much, which just has in private households saved quite a bit of gas. And and so with that, gas prices are, are looking much better in Europe. Production of fertilizers is back, which basically means the concern we had late last year, the Europeans are not producing urea and they will come to the world market and they're going to buy it when we in Australia want it and when the Brazilians want it. That is more or less off the way for now, so that is good. The other part to, to discuss is maybe on the fertilizer side. A lot of uncertainty and price increases came earlier last year when the war started because you look at a, a trade flow map and you say, well, we need to consider Russia because they invaded Ukraine. We need to consider Belarus because that's actually the country where Mr. Putin had his troops worse and they went from Belarus down into the Kiev area. Oh, even some of the fertilizers go from Russia through Ukraine into the ports and the Black Sea there. So three key countries. And if you look for exports of, of potash, that's somewhere around 35-40% of the export mm. for phosphate and, and some of the nitrogen fertilizers were not as high, but it was still somewhere in the 10, 15, 18 percentage range, which is sizable because you know how our markets are. It's not about I have 20% too little and prices go 20% up. Usually it's I've got one or two percent too little and prices go up significantly. So with that, that was a lot of the concern at that point in time. But we have seen that a lot of the sanctions that were put on Russia, sanctions on Belarus and so on, still allow volumes of fertilizers to flow out of the region. I've already talked about the really good job of Ukraine moving fertilizers, I'm sorry, moving grain to the world market. But for fertilizers, they are not as important, but uh, also some of the, the goods move through that country. So overall, the volumes from there are are good, but not excellent. And we had also China playing around with their volumes that they could ship to the world market. So you had all these kind of perfect uncertainties out there where you, you look at it and say, well, if this goes really wrong, we're going to have a real problem and prices go through the roof. And then it somehow works out and prices come slowly but surely down again. And then we were in this 
high gas price scenario and everybody was freaking out again. And now we're kind of in this period. But if you're looking forward, we need to be aware we are now in February, which means in four weeks, six weeks, our friends in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe, in the US, everywhere will wake up out of their winter dormancy. And I'm not saying only the, the farmers, but also the crops on the field. And everybody wants to throw a little bit of nitrogen on their fields because the winter wheat, the, the canola, everything is starting to grow again. They're going to plant corn up in the US and they need to throw fertilizer on that. So we're going to be now in, in that period where pretty soon those farmers will have to put some fertilizers on. So we feel that global prices may have done most of the work on the way down and we'll find the bottom. Our local prices usually always have the issue a little bit more sticky on the way up and a little bit more sticky on the way down. And it takes just a little longer. So local pricing is, is always a bit harder to forecast. But for now, we don't see global prices go to the all-time highs back, which should also be very good news for us here. All right. So we, we've covered off currency. I think we've covered off interest rates, energies, and we've covered off freight. So the one here is energy and also fuel. So fuel's a, a big issue sort of everywhere in the world or the, the cost of um, energy. Do we see any uh, significant change there at all? Well, we, we, we forecast usually only the global kind of oil prices and, and we think that one has not a lot of downside anymore. So we see it go sideways to slightly higher, I think, which um, is not terrible news. But the problem we usually face in many parts of the world is it's not about crude oil. It's about diesel. Mm. And so... The refining capacity in many places of the world is a bottleneck, meaning you may have quite a bit of a disconnect between what your diesel price looks like and your crude oil price looks like because you, you don't have enough refining capacity to convert the crude oil into diesel. So that's where we, we still see that prices will probably remain a bit more elevated for, for the diesel. If you're looking even here in Sydney, we, we usually track over time the spread between crude oil prices on the world market and our diesel prices. That is still elevated. We're still paying a higher share for our diesel locally than we would if we would just consume uh, crude oil. So with that, um, I think good news is that we're off from these very high levels we had earlier, but we probably still have to plan with prices on diesel side that are expensive. Maybe one commodity we haven't talked about too much is, is canola, but it yeah. plays into the whole biofuel sector there as well and, and the energy side of it. And, and so if we're looking at canola, we see a lot of changes in the biofuel space happening that will also impact us here in Australia. On the one side, the key market where we are shipping our canola to as Australia is the European Union. And in the current market, we have one big problem. I mean, we down here planted quite a bit more canola because prices were just awesome at the period when we put the canola in the ground. And uh, we've produced, I think, something like seven and a half million tons of canola across Australia. So a record crop the year before we had already good crop. But looking a little bit back, usually we would have said, ah, four million tons is pretty decent crop for us in Australia. Now we're talking seven and a half million. So almost double what we would have previously considered a good crop. So plenty from us. Our key market, Europe, they had the best crop in five years uh, in 2022. And uh, looking into the forecast for the harvest that will start here in June-ish, July 23, it once again looks like they're going to have a good crop. But it's all about the weather in May. So we, we still see some changes. But for now, that market seems to be good supplied, but they still need imports. And then we need to look at our two competitors in the export market. Ukraine, you would think, oh, a war. So that's good news. There's not much coming. Well, you have to think about 
what makes sense to transport on a really lo expensive logistic chain. So inland logistics is freaking expensive in Ukraine because you need to carry it quite a bit. You sometimes, and if you look right now, a lot of the grain exports, about two-thirds go through the ports these days. One-third goes through neighboring countries uh, by train into Europe and so on. So they have really diversified in the war, but it all costs you money to transport that good. So shipping something that's $500 a ton versus something that's $200 a ton, and I'm just throwing numbers out here, yeah, which yeah. isn't the local price, but it just makes so much more sense to ship something expensive on an expensive kind of route. So oil seeds are still in, in strong kind of a production mode in, in the region. We still think they will have a decent canola crop. They will still have a decent sunseed crop because that's kind of the crop that the farmer love much more these days than maybe a cheaper commodity like corn. So Ukraine, probably still good supplies, even so they're in the war and, and export competition from there. So we need to look at the gorilla in the room and the gorilla in the canola market. That's Canada. I mean, we're talking seven and a half million tons down here, record production, da 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 you look over to Canada, they produce three times as much. So they're producing somewhere in the low 20 million tons volume every year. And normally you would say half of that volume goes into the export channel and half of the volume is locally processed into oil and meal. So um, 10 million tons of exports coming from there. We see a big change in the North American demand for vegetable oils because along the coasts there, California, all the states north of it, even into Canada, they are moving down the road to say, we want to reduce emissions. So we are not saying you have to plant X liters of this versus that. All they say is you have to cut emissions in your transport sector. So your car emissions need to go down. And it could be the electric cars, it could be nitrogen, it could be hydrogen. All of that is in play, but also what is in, in strong play is hydrogenated veg oils, or as the Americans call it, renewable diesel. That's a better quality product than biodiesel, but it still requires one ton of vegetable oil or waste oil, used cooking oil, whatever, tallow, to produce one ton of that, that fuel. So the capacity is increasing dramatically in the region mm -hmm. to produce those hydrogenated veg oils. We actually see that the United States, from being an exporter of veg oils every year, is moving significantly into being an importer. So our friends in Canada have said, well, if we have a neighbor who wants all the oil, we better produce more oil and meal. So they are increasing 50, 60 percent here in, in late 23, parts of 24, the capacity for canola processing, which means rather than shipping 10 million tons of, of canola to the world market, they may only have something like 5 million tons available because they're processing suddenly for some domestically 5 million tons more. Let's see how that all plays out. But that should be good news for us because if less comes from the biggest in the market, the buyers in the world need to focus on those who have it and we are the ones who have it, hopefully. And the last thing to say about it, and sorry, I'm dragging on forever, but Europe, you see quite a bit of change in the biofuel mindset in Europe. Number one change is palm oil is bad for sustainability reasons. So the, the policy direction that has already been taken a while ago, which now starts to really be implemented, is we want to remove and lower the content of palm oil in biodiesel. So to be very frank, the politicians immediately think, yep, let's get rid of that veg oil and we're going to use used cooking oils. So we're collecting from all these French fry uh, producers the, the used oils. And it is a waste product and everybody's happy. 
there is not enough used cooking oils because the Americans want it as well, the Europeans want it. So if you say palm oil, which is making up uh, in Europe something like 25-ish percent or 20 percent of the total volume of biodiesel, if you take that away, you need to find something else that can make up those 20 percent. So we see a good chance for canola oil. So that's good news. However, if you look at, at the prime producer of, uh, of biodiesel in Europe, uh, Germany, you have the Green Party over there driving down the road of, we want to get rid of all veg oils in, in biodiesel. So let's see where that goes. It's already ongoing for a full year, that discussion. The headlines sometimes pop up and are very kind of strong. So that could, could be a headwind for us. Clearly, that would be a, a blow in our face if, if the Europeans change their mind and say, you can't use any kind of veg oil in biodiesel. They wouldn't produce as much biodiesel as they, they do because there is not enough waste oils, mm. as mentioned. But it is only Germany for now thinking. However, very often you see what happens in Germany may happen a couple of years later in the neighboring states and, and countries. So with that, something to keep an eye on. And lastly, in Europe, what we are looking at also is at some point in time, we're going to see the fuel consumption go down because there are clearly more electric cars on the road, more nitrogen and what have you. So with that, we also see the amount of fuel use, diesel use, gasoline use go down. And that also means at some point in time, we're going to sit here and say, well, if they are not using as much diesel, we don't need as much biodiesel. And with that, we need less canola oil to actually produce it. Mm. So as the legislation stands these days, it's going to be very, very hard as from 2032 onwards to sell a diesel car or a, a gasoline car in Europe anymore because your regulations on emissions are so tight that if we look at it, it's pretty much impossible even with a nice kind of plug-in hybrids to actually meet those levels. And I'm not even talking about the big SUVs. I'm talking even about the smaller kind of hmm. whatever Prius type cars. It's very hard to meet those thresholds because there is for now a clear incentive to go towards battery and other cars. And, uh, and, and I'll stop there. But clearly, if you, if you reduce the amount of, of diesel cars on the road, you need usually less biodiesel and less diesel. And if the manufacturers, because Europe's such a large market for these cars, I mean, obviously you've got the, all the German manufacturers, but it, it does influence us here, isn't it? Like, like if you go to buy, I don't know, a European-made car in Australia, it's going to get harder and harder to buy a diesel car, actually. Yeah, it, and it probably does. I mean, these guys, if you look at some of the big car companies, they've set a clear path of we are going to spend money on electric and developing our electric and we're not spending a whole lot of money on uh, on diesel and combustion engines anymore, which means they may still produce one, but do you really want to buy a car that has pretty much the same technology as 10 or 15 years ago? It's probably more about the impact, isn't it? The impact that, the, you know, we're saying, yeah. well, we're a long way from Europe, but this stuff does impact us. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's coming each way. And maybe lastly, to to say sustainability is kind of the thinking behind a lot of that. and mm. And I think a lot will happen in regulatory areas. Clearly, what we discussed here for the cars, this is part of the EU's um, Fit for 55 strategy. So mm -hmm. that basically means by 50, 2055, the EU wants to be carbon neutral. And on the way there, they want to do quite some cuts. And within that Fit, to, fit for 55 policy, there are bunches, uh, so more than a dozen kind of different policies from what kind of uh, sustainable air fuels do you need and can they use veg oils or not? And the answer is no. What kind of sustainable maritime fuels do you need for our boats and, and vessels? And once again, the answer is you can't use veg oils in there in Europe. 
Um, what kind of insulation for housing do we need in the future? So all kind of things in there, but also what is happening in Europe clearly is we're going to see a pressure on cutting significantly the amount of fertilizers, the amount of chemicals used. Mm. And um, that's a, the pressure we also see in other parts of the world. But as started in our conversation very early on, a 15 hectare farm I'm coming from, um, average farm size in, in Germany is, thinking is something like 50 hectares, so five zero. That's not a whole lot. If you're thinking about, well, let's buy a new sprayer for mm. a couple of hundred thousand to, uh, to save fertilizers. It's going to be much more difficult for these guys to, to make happen and to say, well, I've got a, a sprayer here that's a few years old, but suddenly it doesn't do the trick anymore. I think for the Europeans, it is much more difficult to implement some of those technologies compared to what it is for us here in the prime regions of farming uh, in Australia. So with that, we may have an edge, actually. Yeah, so as Australian and probably I'd say the US, I'd be in a similar position. Absolutely. Can go, okay, fertilizer price have gone up. We can improve our seed placement, our fertilizer efficiency, our yep. spray efficiencies. But what you're saying Absolutely. is a lot of the small producers, not just in Europe, but probably a lot of the Asian continent also yep. don't have that opportunity, you know, because yep. of the cost of capital. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, then you need to think about, can you find contractors who may do some of that and so on? There will be probably solutions. Mm -hmm. But thinking about, well, you anyway buy two new sprayers every year on a big farm over here. Well, well, maybe not every year, but every couple of years. So why not buy one that costs you a bit more, but does all the savings? Mm. It's just so much easier to do on this side than it is on these farms that are very, very small scale and, and where an investment like that is just impossible to, to make happen. Just quickly, just on machinery, because obviously there's and nearly every grower around Australia has been experiencing massive. So you, they've had pretty good years. A lot of people are wanting to buy new equipment, but there's massive backlogs in the supply chain on equipment. Just, I don't know if you have any expertise in this, but we were talking about shipping earlier on. Is there any, is that backlog still pretty solid on, on equipment for, for getting equipment to Australia? Uh, I, I have very limited insights, but what I hear anecdotally from, from the clients I'm talking to on the, on the farming side, I think it is still the same issue that, okay. well, it probably gets a little bit better at some point in time, but I, I don't expect that you can easily just say, oh, I can forget what I learned in the last 12 months with machinery being very tight and it takes forever to get one to just think, well, in two months time, we're going to sit here and we get everything we need. I think it's yeah. unrealistic. Most of 23, we still have to live with, well, if something is broken, we need to find an alternative and it might not be that there is a nice machine just standing next door and can mm. be delivered in a few days. I was talking to a friend the other day who um, works in a, one of the large trucking businesses and he goes, all I sell now is brochures. I've got a two-year wait list on every... <laughs> he goes, oh, there's a two-year wait list on every truck. So yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that, that shows you, and I think we're not in a much different space here in, in the ag sector. But as I said, I'm, I'm not very, very much into, into the details of that. But what okay, I hear, cool. it sounds like, like we're going to have to work through those issues a little longer than just uh, a few weeks. So um, last couple of things before we go. Important stuff, this, this report. So where can growers and advisors, et cetera, get access to the report, Stefan? Well, we, we make that report actually available for everybody for free. So it's on the www.rabobank.com.au or au.com. Can't remember yeah. how, which way around <laughs> it is down here. But .com uh, basically, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you go, go on the Rabobank website and, and you Google for it, uh, you'll probably easily okay. find it. 
it's going to be out there on Twitter and LinkedIn and what have you. So all those social media things that I'm maybe not the best at, they're out there. So that's what we usually do with, with kind of the monthly report as well. Clearly, we want to help our clients, but we also feel a responsibility for the industry to just share that knowledge uh, with a wider group. So all of our monthly reports are also freely available for everybody. There's no passport. But we also do a couple of reports that we just lock nicely behind a password so our <laughs> clients are treated a little bit more special. Oh, very good. And as you do, we do plenty of podcasts. So we're also going to talk about all these commodities on our podcast channel. So sorry for making a little bit of advertisement, but go on your podcast app and, and have a look for Rabo Research and you're going to find channels for Australia, but also for uh, North America or South America and all kinds of things. So uh, plenty of free news available also from us and free insights. Brilliant. Now, before we go, last thing, when you're not working in research and economics and ag, how do you spend your time, Stefan? So what's the other uh, side of Stefan? The other side of Stefan is uh, I, I'm as outdoor as I can be. Uh, having only a year ago moved to Sydney, I think I've seen pretty much every shoreline from, let's see, Bandina on the southern side of, uh, of uh, Sydney all the way up to Palm Beach on the northern side and walked pretty much every step of that at least once. And, and I love it a lot. I think it is just extremely beautiful over here. And, uh, and with that, I'm enjoying as much time as I can out there seeing that. But even my job is an awesome one. I mean, who else pays me to travel to, I think I'll be in Western Australia in about three weeks time going into a uh, Nurgen region there. Uh, who pays me to travel over there, speak with nice people, have a nice barbecue with our clients, talk a little bit about content like this one. So even my job is usually a lot of fun. That's great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stefan. And, um, you've, it's been a great conversation, especially because you, one, you've been in this field a long time, but have such a great global perspective in this. And sometimes I think it's very important for all of us to, because we get, so, we do live, especially in Ag, an incredibly globally connected ecosystem and to get that perspective. And sometimes, you know, there is some people win and some people lose. So like we say with the, the soybeans, you know, bad for Americans, great for South Americans, you know, and I think we all share that between us all. So thank you very much for your time and good luck with the rest of your uh, discussions. You're going you're gonna to get sick of talking about the report within a couple of days, I think. But. Ah, no, I love what I'm doing. So I'll, I'll tell my wife tonight everything once again on the phone or when I see her. <laughs> no. Well, thanks for having me, David. And, and great to be at least with my voice over in WA. And uh, I'm, I'm always happy to travel over. I mean, it's a long flight to get to WA from Sydney, but... Uh, Usually very worthwhile. Uh, I, I really love the farming style that you guys do over in WA. And as you can see, I've been the last 20 years or so in the grains and oilseed space. And uh, I love to get out and see how you how it's done right. And usually when I look at Western Australia, it's done right. Good on you, mate. We'll think we'll leave it on that note. And thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you very much. Have a good one. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. My aim with this podcast is to make it the most useful podcast you listen to and to help every farm business thrive. So if you like this episode, please take the time to share it on social media or even better, directly with at least one friend today. Plus, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify as it really helps us reach more farm businesses like you. So together, we can make all farm businesses strong farm businesses. Thank you. Thank you.